1: Hi, I wanted to start with a bit of a show update. Also, we're going to answer some questions from listeners who go on to the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group on Facebook. Join that. Would you, I mean, if you, especially if you want to ask a question, you know, I'm probably going to be, I do Q&A episodes once in a while. I've had such a load of topics, it's been difficult. But I want to do a few more this year. We are on Twitter, at MyHist, at M-Y-H-I-S-T. Love to hear from you. Please follow me. If you like the program, write a review. And if you're using Apple Podcasts in particular, Podcast Addict, good too, Overcast, these are all good, Stitcher. But in particular, Apple Podcasts, the biggest distribution engine for podcasts. I want to talk a bit about the Airwave Media Network. We are part of that. That is Ben Mathis's Network. And Ben Mathis is the host of Kick-Ass News. And just like this program, it has kind of a funny name, right? But it's extremely popular. He's getting tens of thousands of downloads for his episode. He has top celebrities on there. He's talked to everybody. Talked to Bourdain um, before his death. He talked to, you know, there are episodes of Dick Cavett. There's episodes, Ken Burns, Bob Woodward. So check his podcast out. But he also is the head of Airwave Media Network, and it's been great to be part of it. Ben Franklin's World is another podcast in the network. Infamous America with Chris Wimmer. A note about ads. I know ads are interruptive. There's no other way. That's what ads do. And I know there's also been some slip-ups where we have placed an ad in the middle of a sentence. Those are just mistakes. They, they're my mistakes. I'm doing that placement. I had to do a lot of programming at one time, and uh, there were some mistakes there. I'm trying now to sample each episode to be sure we're right. You won't hear from me something like, and now a word from our sponsors, it's too difficult. And also advertisers just frown on it. The good side of ads is this. You're going to get more content. If you want to get earlier content, I have many episodes early on the Patreon site, patreon.com slash I have a full-time job. It's actually not a small job. So, the ads have really made My History Can Beat Up Your Politics viable. I think absent it, there might be a point at which, I don't know if I'd ever stop, but it just becomes, it would become kind of frozen where you just kind of release an episode once in a blue moon. I was maybe heading there before I joined this network. I've been able to release a lot of archived content because there really isn't a reason to hold it back. So, ads, for all their negative qualities, they're good things they do. Okay, enough said there. We had an episode called Disorder at the Capitol. Most of it, about half that episode, was recorded right after the events of January 6th and was recorded for the Patreon subscribers and just recounting other times when there's been disorder at the Capitol. There are a few people who I believe widely misinterpreted what I was saying on that cast. And particularly as we talked about the events of May Day – There was a thought that, oh, you're comparing the events of a day to the events of another day. You're saying that uh, the people in May Day were equal to insurrectionists and people who were attacking the Capitol on January 6th. I think we not only did not say that, we were saying the opposite. So we're losing maybe um, in some minds the comparison and also contrast element so maybe they heard the comparison and went with that and said well just by comparing that's enough Uh, i compare and contrast so for instance when we talked about Day, i talked about how they had peace marshals training there was no attack on the capitol and more importantly the authorities i might disagree with how they did it made sure that the protest was not able to interrupt congress or do anything else that's the contrast Something very different happened at January 6th in two ways. People got aggressive going in and attacking the Capitol and, in you know, my view, threatening to attack members of Congress and certainly threatening the vice president. I, I do believe that January 6th is a terrible day and I do believe that it uh, came close to being a much worse day. And the difference in the response is what I wanted to point out. If you look at all those other incidents, there's a quick response. Now here, the Capitol Police were overwhelmed, and there was no support from the authorities that needed to be called in. It should be assumed that you can call in the National Guard for such a, you know, for such a disorder event, and it was denied to the people that needed it to happen. And that's, that goes to the president at the time. I mean, that's what we're pointing out there. So I will say this, I did make a quick reference because I always do like to explore all the sides of an issue. That if you took May Day protesters at their word, like what they said they would do is surround the Capitol and not allow the Congress to leave. Not allow them to leave till you pass a legislation you want them to pass. I think it's right to criticize that. But the real point is it never got anywhere near there. In case a response by the proper authorities, it made that impossible so that government could function. But somehow on January 6th, it did not. That was the point of the contract. If it was missed, I mean, someone thought I was saying it's okay to go attack the Capitol. I, I don't know how much of this sh- show you've listened to then. So let's take a couple listener questions. And they're, they're all big topics. No, nothing small here. <laughs> Mark Hadnott writes, how about discussing the influence of Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan, and Newt Gingrich? on the socio-political zeitgeist that developed in the late 20th century to the present. That's timely, since Newt just stated publicly that the January 6th panel should be jailed. Good one, Newt. Take a page out of the dictator's playbook and jail your political enemies. So writes Mark Hadnott. And thanks, Mark. When I look at the three people you mentioned, certainly Candidate Goldwater and Senator Goldwater, set some thoughts in motion that, let's say, were unhelpful towards respect for government. There's two positive aspects of Goldwater that I believe you have to look at. During Watergate, he was a very powerful force in making sure that Nixon was held to account. During the 80s, he was a very critical to the Reagan administration on some of the actions in Nicaragua. He had a, he's a conservative but very principled The one thing, uh, another thing to say about Goldwater, he was a pioneer. Goldwater was a member of the NAACP in Arizona. In the Arizona uh, National Guard, where he was a pilot, he insisted that that unit be integrated. He votes against the civil rights bill. That is true. He justifies it in a, you know, about a libertarian issue and. I clearly disagree with him on it. A lot of people did. It certainly hurt him in the 1964 general election. But on the other hand, if you're in the 50s and you're looking at Senator Goldwater, the reason he stands out is that he's not just criticizing Democrats in the 50s. He's criticizing Eisenhower. He felt Eisenhower's policies were just a dime store new deal. He opposed Earl Warren as chief justice of Supreme Court. He opposed uh, Eisenhower's budget. He felt he was spending too much. He was sharply critical of Eisenhower. And he was certainly pushing the party right. And you saw a movement build around him. So certainly, you know, yeah, his rhetoric. Um, and when you look at Gingrich, Gingrich becomes a congressman in the 1978 midterm election. That's Jimmy Carter's First term, midterms. And like most presidents in first term, he does lose seats in that election. Gingrich is one of the people elected actually over in Tennessee. Al Gore is going to be elected on the Democratic side. So that, that election brings forth some future leaders. Gingrich starts right from the beginning. He has no interest in compromise, in complacency. He wants Republicans to be on the attack. There's some multiple sides to that. I, I will talk about it a bit. Gingrich is another one who, like Goldwater, didn't have a problem criticizing Republicans when he came on. He called Bob Dole the tax collector for the welfare state. Bob Livingston, a Louisiana Republican, actually elected. He didn't end up serving because of a scandal. Speaker after Gingrich said, my idea was to work within the committee structure, take care of my district, pay attention to the legislative process. Newt came in as a revolutionary. Here's what Gingrich says as he becomes a congressman in 1978. One of the great problems we have in the Republican Party is that we don't encourage you to be nasty. We encourage you to be neat, obedient, loyal, and faithful. And all those Boy Scout words, which would be great around the campfire, but are lousy in politics. Republicans would have to start to learn to raise hell, stop being so nice, and realize that politics was cutthroat. He would make a lot of speeches on C-SPAN where they allowed these member speeches to go on, uh, he made one attack that in 1984, it gets Tip O'Neill so riled up that he makes a rare uh, speech at the well of the house and says it was one of the lowest things he had ever heard. It actually reflects badly on O'Neill because you're not supposed to criticize house members. It sounds so innocent today compared to some things that are said. But also it was the big politician going in after the small one and stepping down to their level. And Newt Gingrich looked at it. Hey, I've just become famous. When the uh, And this isn't a well-known fact, but when the um, Republicans take over in 1994, Gingrich is not in the top position. It's Bob Michael. But people felt that Bob Michael, a Republican from Illinois, was too complacent. And Newt is actually the whip. And he takes over. Now, look, look at things from the from another side here, from from Gingrich's side of things. Democrats had the Congress for forty years, right? It goes from nineteen fifty four to nineteen ninety four. Right? He's coming in at by nineteen seventy eight. Republicans had not had a speaker, had not controlled Congress. They're just a minority party, party. and by nature, is a little bit of a you could if you're. On that side of politics, you're calling it a Stockholm syndrome, right? You're in there and you, you know it's not going to get any better, so you're just cooperating. He also knows how to capture headlines. He, If you're not in the Washington Post every day, you might as well not exist, he tells a reporter. You get atten- attention when you give them confrontation. So his comments, he's never stopped that, ever. It's just that he's receded because, like a lot of revolutionaries, when they get to power, you see what they're like when they're actually having to lead. I mean, you can look at it a couple of ways. Republicans did control the Congress for a little while under him, but it's also pretty, I mean, I'm sure Bill Clinton would say he found him very useful because Bill Clinton based his re-election around him. It's not an exact match, but if you look at somebody like a Tony Coelho now, he's not someone who, in terms of nastiness, but there in the 80s, at the same time that Gingrich is getting started, Tony Coelho's kind of similar that he wants to cement the Democratic Party in Congress and institutionally to extract larger than usual donations from business clients, to certainly go after Republicans in terms of things like ads with scissors cutting social security cards. And, you know, he's, he's, he's brought down when he re- there's reports that he received a loan from a savings and loan executive to purchase junk bonds. Uh, he's never charged. But, you know, what made the Gingrich thing work is that, the, I guess to say, is that there were also a lot of comfortability with institutions and corporations within the Democratic Party that was controlling the House. They'd been in there an awfully long time. So Gingrich benefits from a lot of good timing, but he also wants republicans to fight now his statement is ludicrous that he made today and he's still that same gingrich trying to get press attention it's a little less credible now because i think they people have seen what he's like as a leader and nobody's been interested there's this little blip in 2012 where he's actually the number one republican primary candidate and he quickly dissolves i did a podcast called gingrich and goldwater that i um It's not, uh, I got to put it up one of these days. Um, It might be a little outdated. That just talks about the two. Okay, I wanted to save the last person you mentioned for the last. I think what your point is, you want to say like, what got us here to where a rally for a Republican president turns into an attack on the Capitol? So is this kind of like this anti-government rhetoric, extreme politics, yeah, I would go with a general assessment that extreme politics in general, that pushing the envelope all the time, you know, is definitely a factor behind what happened. And, you know, what people need to realize about that, because, you know, moderates get a bad name because we're boring, right? It's like, but if you, if you push the envelope, so will the other side. The only way you have democracy in politics is it's got to be some kind of compromise going on at some basic level, and we're we're losing some of that. I think that's clear. I don't know what the answer is. I wanted to deal with the last person you mentioned last, and that's Ronald Reagan. To what extent is his, his rhetoric? That I can't go along with. I think that, okay, as a candidate, there was some John Birchie type stuff. Certainly, he, if you're talking about Goldwater, you have to talk about Reagan, because in the 60s, he was a Goldwaterite, right? right? But when you actually look at Reagan president, particularly second term, I can't draw any line and be a responsible um, seeker of history. I can't draw any line and make a responsible comment that you can draw Ronald Reagan to uh, the events of January 6th. Ronald Reagan would have been disgusted by the events of January 6th. Nothing would have been further from something he would support than that. This was a president enamored with american symbols um he may have had his fights with tip o'neill attacking the building that congress meets in whatever the political issues is and i and i have differences of opinion with the policies and the focus and very little done about health care and things like that leaving a lot of, of problems but put that aside Reagan is actually an example for the opposite. When you talk about you can have some policy differences that might even be extreme, like I want to do a really large cut in government without that second nastiness quality that comes in. Maybe it is part of the answer. I'm to start thinking about Ronald Reagan's legacy. We're going to talk about him a little bit in the next question. It is absolutely right for the House to use its investigatory powers to... Examine the events of an attack on their own building. It's wrong to obstruct it. It is okay, in my opinion, if you're seeing that something is taken too far, if you're seeing that it's being used for politics, that's fine. Let the investigation happen and then make your complaints. But blocking the investigation in the beginning, big mistake, my opinion. Teresa Hansen writes, All this talk about inflation and home prices, I recall the late 70s, my early teens, Mom changed jobs, sold house, bought closer to work, proud that she got only an 18% interest rate on the mortgage. Inflation was expected. Mom handled brief episode of unemployment better than many. She was more employable, math and computers, but so many people were unemployed. My parents were divorced, but dad got a good government job and sanitation. I remember people talking trash about the military jobs, taxes, gas prices, home buying. I don't see the 08-09 crash coming. But some things look like the late 70s. Reagan made us proud to be Americans. I don't see anyone doing that today. This is uh, Teresa Hansen. So much complaining about all the politicians. What can we take from similar events in our history to help us fare through these crazy times? Yeah, I always think that times will be a little crazy and times will be a little political. We are not prepared mostly for inflation. We haven't had it at all since the Carter administration, beginning of the Reagan administration, and it was on the downside during that administration, which was certainly helpful to him in, in, in 84. I do think 1970s inflation is very tied to energy. It's very tied to oil, and you had the OPEC cartel holding back on production of oil. As far as I can see in the recent news, there is a meeting shortly as I'm recording this to see how much they're going to increase. The production of oil from their various members. We don't have that same type. That didn't actually work out well for all of the OPEC nations. Saudi Arabia suffered because of that OPEC attempt to get the oil price up. It didn't work as well for all the members of OPEC as they had planned. But that drove a lot of want. It drove schools closing early, not being able to deliver products, factories not shutting down, and a lot of inflation because Everything is involved with gas prices and, and the price of gas is, is, is only the most visible. It's, it's in everything. So I do think now there is a little bit of an increase in oil um, as I'm recording this over the Ukraine talk, but comparable to the 70s, we're not quite there yet. Yeah, I'm not an expert in, in these things. I did see an analysis that said, that, look, we've had spikes in oil recently, but unlike the 70s, they go down pretty quickly. You see a little bit of that in the charts. I, I'm not an expert analyst. So that's a possibility I'll throw out there. But what you really see is two things you mentioned. We're not tied to unemployment and, and, and also we're not tied to interest rates. Interest rates were huge during the, um, during the 70s. Prevent home buying, prevent growth, prevent uh, remodeling of homes, all these things that kind of boost economies. You can actually do quite well in inflation if you have a job, let's say a union job where there's constant negotiations and you're getting those increases, right? If you're increasing your salary along with the prices, inflation doesn't hurt you as much. And this, I believe it's kind of the situation you're describing with your mother. That happened a lot in the 70s. There are also groups like oil producers and people in oil producing states, Remember the Dallas TV program that came out, right? That was a that was a TV show tied to a trend that was going on that all of a sudden in oil producing states, North Dakota, Texas, there were booms, farmers with commodities doing better than ever before. So not everyone suffers in an inflation. It's just too much of anything is a bad thing. And if it's really high, yeah, there's going to be problems and we're just not used to it. Reagan made us proud to be Americans. I don't see anyone doing that today. It's a little harder to deal with that question. But related to the whole discussion I had before, I can't get away from thinking that here's a guy that wins 49 of 50 states. Who has done that? Who will do that now? With both parties betting on partisan turnout, you're losing a bit of that. You're losing a bit of that. There are also economic factors behind that 84 win. I'm just saying here was a politician that could win in New York, in California, in Arkansas, in South Carolina. He made us proud to be Americans. I think it was a goal. And he set out for it to be a goal. And it's still ridiculed today. And when it gets to be too much, like for instance, George H.W. Bush is running in 1988, goes to visit like a flag factory. There are universal jokes about this. Like this is too much. You're just wrapping yourself in the flag. But there is something to be said about it. And I think we talked about that in the in the Reagan cast, that in other words, what I think Reagan does that, I don't think people, maybe it was more visible, is to even create the archetype of what a president is. Like, why would you want this office, right? What are the powers of this office? Because he had established it as a pulpit, you know, in a way that Carter could and Ford was having trouble with. I don't think Nixon ever did a great job with. Yeah, and to even see that as a goal of just making Americans feel better. However, I read that quote from Richard Rorty at the end of the Reagan podcast, and I'm not fully remembering, so I'm going to paraphrase a little, but it was like, you know, too much patriotism can cause like a, a kind of like American-centric policy. We're the best. We'll go over and beat everyone. That's not helpful, I think, for a country, but you have to love the country to run the country. Right now, we're very split up in partisan ways. There's a group of Americans who would argue with your premise. They would say, Biden makes us proud to be Americans. Um, There's a group of people who will say, what are you talking about? Trump made us proud to be Americans, if there were supporters of him. But what you're really talking about, I think where, where Reagan's example comes to bear, is here is a guy that was trying to reach out to all and very successfully politically scored and on a lot of policies was able to his support for policies more policies on on the left side of things than people realize his backing was sought out now a presidential backing is just one part of the partisan arsenal and it's not really that um so it's, it's of limited use but it's important i mean everything biden says is important but it's it's already kind of expected. Do we need, I mean, does anyone need to be convinced that this is still a great country and the system is great? And even in the, in the middle of things that we don't like, in the middle of people we don't like, there are still great values. Like, I don't like what every state in the 50 states are doing. Like, in response to COVID, say, I might have quibbles with the governor of Texas on some things. I do like that we have states. Right. I do like the system because it allows for experimentation and policy and it allows for some bulwark against if the wrong person is in the federal government position. So I hope to I I guess I guess what I'm saying in answer to your question is I also while I acknowledge what you're saying about Reagan, you know, and America, shouldn't we just have enough inert feeling about it? And, And I guess just look at it. A, a, a cursory look at history or the systems of government around the world right now should perform the same function. And Maybe that's naive, but that, that's the way I see it. In the statements of people you don't like, there are values that you like. And that's what people still have to start thinking about. Um, what we're not doing anymore, social media forces talking at people. Absolutely, it's like partial statements, and you get likes for things that focusing discussion. It does focus argument many times. We're not talking enough. We're not seeing each other's value. We're Not meeting at the middle. We're not using common sense. We're not we're not assuming positive intent of other people. You know, it's a lot of like existential politics, and this is going to be end of the world if this person gets elected. That always happens a little bit. It's a lot of that. Okay, related uh, Merle Miles. Do you have anything to put in perspective the Joe Rogan phenomenon? I mean, comedian being pointed out as a force of disinformation, whether it is because history is not good for the ones living through it or more generally opinion being squashed. Um, the thing that I would want to talk about in that context, first of all, okay, so let's get some context. You have the, the Joe Rogan um, as a podcaster. I would feel differently about all of this if this guy – had established himself as um anti-science you know if he was just his whole goal was spouting out um misinformation but he didn't i mean he he had a many years of long-form interviews a lot of people like it had nothing to do with any of the current controversy he's not um he's not like a dr mercola or a extreme anti-vaxxer or something like that he has made statements that that adults you know um could take the vaccine. Where it's controversy is that he's talking about treatments that are not medically supported. Where it's controversy, he's talking about young people. If you just work out, you'll be okay, or just paraphrasing a bit. And this is where the controversy is. Other statements. Um, I'm very sensitive to this because I remember what went on with Howard Stern. And Howard Stern wasn't talking medicine, but there was a propensity to censor him. Uh, I was very influenced by Howard Stern, just as a person who loved radio. You might laugh and say, well, oh my God, the difference between my history can beat up your politics and something like Fart Man is pretty strong. And and no, that's not the part of Howard Stern's show that I enjoy. When those type of things were talked about, I, I you might find me turning off. Howard Stern's a great interviewer, and he always was. I mean, this goes back to the 80s. He always was a really great, insightful person and interviewer. It's just he had to build an audience, and so... It's important to make some distinctions about what we're really talking about here. Now, here's the difference, and I will bring up some history. We're talking about medicine. The ability of the state, the state's interest to regulate medical speech is much stronger than anything else. In in fact, I'd go as far to say you really don't have a First Amendment that much when we're talking about medical speech because the state's interest is so much higher that it almost negates it in a, in I'll give you an example. John Romulus Brinkley, an American doctor. You can't describe him really as a doctor. He never got proper education as a physician. He buys his medical degree from an unregulated diploma mill. He originally starts selling a, a male impotence cure, the Greenville Electro Medic Doctors. That's the name of his first shop. He was injecting what was basically colored water into patients and saying it would Um, It was electric medicine from Germany and will cure all your ills. And as soon as he got enough patients and got enough money, he charged something that would be like $700 in today's dollars. He got out of town along with his partner. He then started broadcasting on the radio and um, selling his patent medicines that way. Now, Brinkley and a lot of patent medicine, there's history of patent medicine that's going to lead to more and more regulation of philosophically we should just be um, trusting individuals right to, to make their own decisions but mm, that's more difficult in these times you know that's more difficult when does every citizen have the ability to judge science they have a chemical laboratory at their disposal so the government gets more and more involved in the 20th century in the regulation of patent medicines which is really the history of american medicine whole podcast itself I'm not going to talk about that part. Just going to talk about Brinkley, that he starts going on the radio selling his cures, and eventually has to broadcast from Mexico. That's going to lead to uh, him losing his license, but also Herbert Hoover regulating radio, and what can be said on radio and requiring licenses for the radio. So you do have a history there, uh, regulation of the practice of medicine, which is often spoken. Right? If a doctor's talking to you, that's speech, but it is extremely regulated speech because they have to get their license. Usually in most states, it's from a state board of practice. I wouldn't cry a tear about someone like Romulus Brinkley losing his license, losing his ability to be on the radio in the United States. I don't think it damages the First Amendment a- at all. There are certain people that are just all about like anti-vax, and I think Some of the loss of that speech is probably not something to be too sad about. Here's where I think we have to be careful. If you have a person that is spending about 90% of their show on regular issues, discussing things, and has a long history of interviewing people, like, I guess I'd say, like, pull off an episode that maybe has a controversial statement about a treatment. But why do you have to pull off uh, his interview with Liz Fair? You know? Is there any meeting in the middle here on this issue? Because free speech is such an important value, and the really the cure for it is more speech. I talked about this in the statues episode. I think part of the cure for a statue that's bad is to have a sign or placard in front of it, it explaining more of the story, what this statue means, and that there's opposition maybe to the person being being honored. I'm not opposed to things like disclaimers. I'm not even opposed to removal of episodes. I think we have to be careful about removing people from major platforms. Uh, that's that's getting into a little bit more of a gray area. And I would say, can you do it with a disclaimer? Can you do it with a, um, if you download this, you have to click something. One thing that's been clear from court cases, I'm particularly thinking of World War I and the extreme regulation of speech, especially around ideas like socialism, which had very negative consequences for anyone involved in it um arrest, deportation, the destruction of offices and papers, and the like, the jailing of leaders. the Supreme Court, though at the time even made it clear if you're saying we're an emergency, okay, gotta be temporary when then emergency's over, gotta lift restrictions. I'll tell you why because I worry about a future where much more is is regulated, and um' I. Was like, You're going to say, Bruce, you do very thoughtful pieces on history and politics. Thank you. Thank you. But, you know, I never know when, you know, I certainly reinterpret history. What you're hearing on my cast is not always the prevailing view in textbooks. I talk about things that might make people uncomfortable, certainly, all the time. Would someone one day criticize that? Uh, So I worry about that. And the only answer to speech is more speech, in my opinion. Not a purist about it, though, and like I said, things like disclaimers to me are part of that speech process. What you have with Neil Young, for instance, totally his choice. He told Spotify, take my music off. That's a free artist's choice. I guess that's all I can say about it. Ongoing issue. We'll see what happens with all of that.
0: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Kevin Witten, first maybe a bit on the history of the size of the House of the Repres- the size of the House of Representatives, how that was determined in the past, with the addition of new states to the Union, and why it's set at the current number of four hundred and thirty five, even though the population of the U.S. has at least doubled since the number was set. Thanks, Kevin. Appreciate the question. Thanks for listening. Populations more than tripled even since the time because it was 1911 when the last actual change in the size of the House of Representatives was made. It's tripled from 98 million to 330 million persons with the same 435 represented them. There's a little quick spike when they added Alaska and Hawaii. They had to bring it up to 437, but it was quickly brought back down to 435. I did do an episode on representation some time ago. I won't go into every nook and cranny of it, but it has been a while. So I'm always, um, I have a lot of new listeners. So just because I covered something in 2009, say, I don't always even remember what I covered, right? So uh, some people haven't heard it. I'm not a fan of the federal House representation we have right now. I think most people feel distant from their Congress people. I think most of the framers, I'm going to quote one that feels the opposite. But I think most of the framers of the Constitution wanted more representation. And so this is not something to pin on the founders, the framers, those in the Constitutional Convention. They set the number 30,000, one representative per 30,000 persons. And George Washington himself backed that number. We're nearing a million now, 800,000. How does a person really be represented by a representative who has 799,000 other people to represent. I think it's difficult. And I I think, though, we can't blame that too much on the framers and founders. That's something that really goes back to the t- 1911. And the decision to keep it is in the 20s. Why? It's political. Population had changed. More people moved to the cities they tended to, not all cities in America, but most cities in America tended to vote Democratic, Republicans were in control of Congress, had the presidency, a reapportionment would have meant they might have to hand over the House. They did not want to do it. In 1929, they vote to freeze the House in, um, in 1929. Now, that's a, a political reason. There's other factors. They really do feel that the House is too big. Here's what Representative Edgar Crumpacker of Indiana, that really is his name, members are supposed to reflect the opinion and to stand for the wishes of their constituents. If we make the ratio of persons per representative too large, the idea of representation becomes attenuated and less definite. The personal interest of the voter in his representative becomes less important to him. I think most people feel distant from their representatives, and because of it, it enlarges the power of the president. And we don't know our Congress members that well. We put our faith in the president as the person that will represent a popular mandate. And that's a really hard function for a president to do, to represent all the American people. But the president does. And I think we we elevate the president because of this distance we have with congressional members. I don't think it's originally how it was supposed to work with districts at just 30,000 persons. There are architecture issues. I think they're exaggerated. If you can do 435, that's already a big number, you can do more. I watch the UK Parliament on a regular basis. I see overflowing benches. Whenever there's an election where one party in Britain gets a lot of the vote, the benches overflow on that side of Parliament. They deal with it. Sometimes there's not a seat for everyone. You have house balconies. They could be used for representatives. I mean, that's a simple change. It's not ideal, but it could be. You could enlarge the chamber. You could make architectural changes. I I don't think in 2022 these are serious issues. You could have virtual votes, things like that. You do have to think about what that number is, and I'm not sure. You know, I have it. Make it 800 members. I mean, just get it down to where you're. You know, 300 to 400 thousand is the average representation so you have a chance of being able to talk to a congress member talk to uh, you know have have them at your kids high school graduation how much or the extreme you know when I look at the numbers of what the average member of the UK parliament represents you know I mean it could be a few towns you get just more of a chance to interact with the congressperson, feel that your views are represented, uh, review more of the nooks and crannies of opinions in America and give a better, better representation of viewpoints. There is a contrary view and it goes all the way back to the founding. Here it is. James Wilson. A large representation, sir, draws along with great expense. We know that expense is offered as an objection to the system and certainly had the representation been greater, the clamor would have been on that side. But the expense is not the sole objection. And there is in the opinion of some writers that the deliberative body ought not to consist of more than 100 members. In other words, outside of 100 members you're not really deliberating as a group anymore. This is Wilson's point. And he's actually referring to other people making this point. I think, however, that there might be safety and propriety in going beyond that number. <laughs> but Wilson set the number low at 100. But certainly there is some number so large that it would be improper to increase them beyond it. And I actually agree with Wilson on that point. I think I'm just going to ratchet up numbers in a modern society higher than he would in the 18th century. The British House of Commons consists of upwards of 500. The Senate of Rome consisted, it is said, at some times, of 1,000 members. This last number is certainly not too great. The Convention endeavored to steer a middle course. And when we consider the scale on which they formed their calculation, there are strong reasons why the representation should not have been larger. The House of Representatives could, within a single century, consist of more than 600 members. He thought that was shocking. Permit me to add a further observation that a large number is not so necessary in this case as in the cases of state legislators. Legislatures. Why does Wilson say this? In state legislatures, there ought to be representation sufficient to declare the situations of every county, town, and district, of every individual, so much the better. Their powers extend to the particular, the interest, and the convenience of each. For general government, Wilson says, it's not as necessary. You don't need that kind of representation because we're considering the big questions of general legislative authority. But really, what Wilson's just defending is the number of 30,000, which in proportion most would agree is, is is not a bad deal. I agree and disagree in part with Wilson. I mean, I, don't, I think, no, uh, people do need to be connected even to the federal government and what it's doing. And maybe uh, it has become more a part of the particulars of life because it's determining things like school funding, road funding, health care. Health care for seniors, senior social security. So, you know, his point made then isn't as valid now. There's no silver bullets in life. If you were to expand Congress to 800 or 1,000, there's negatives. It's more politics, right? This is a big argument. You're introducing more politicians. You're introducing more jobs you have to pay for, more money, more staff. With the computer-enforced gerrymandering excellence that's possible today, you might just be giving the gerrymanders in various states more weapons, more seats that they can manipulate the, the the expected votes in to determine which parties they want to win in their state, even more. So more representation might will not cure that problem immediately. It absent the computers being able to really and the and the. Being able to really pinpoint target, it might because increased representation in any state would actually force more representation from cities in a way that's not as possible now. But when you can really pinpoint it, uh, there's ways around that. It might be unmanageable to have 800,000 people. Maybe the speaker becomes more powerful because there's too many little congressmen that aren't going to amount to anything, little congresspeople that aren't going to amount to anything. I'm going to note the opinions of 30,000.org. 30,000.org makes some interesting arguments. For one, if you're going to say we're adding more politicians by adding more congresspeople, you're... You're kind of conflating politicians and bureaucrats or just people there as takers when we're talking about more people that do the important function of government, which is actually represent you and I. Also, if we have more representation, you'll actually get less of that craven politician. Why? Because if you've got to explain yourself to, say, 100,000 people, you can't be as ambiguous. You can't hide as much as if you're explaining yourself to 500, 800,000. It'll be easier, in other words, for your constituents to keep a watch on you. That's the opinion of sick of 30,000.org. The other point they make is that you need less staff. The reason staff's expanded is because the Congress people were complaining. We're representing more and more people. We need larger staff. You may be able to keep the staff similar. I don't personally, I don't believe staff or architecture are significant obstacles. If you decided to do this, they could be pretty easily overcome. We have a lot of buildings in Washington, D.C. now. It's not the the small place it was even in 1911. Yeah, again, I, I just think in general, it, it, it plays into a lot of themes we're talking about. We look at Washington now very distant. We watch cable news networks or go on social media, read articles. We hear about Washington from a very distant way and not a personal way. We know we have a congressperson. I don't think most of us see Washington through that person. But that's what the framers wanted, and we're not really doing it. We either have um, – we put our faith in the president to represent us. That's an, almost impossible. There's a lot of action in terms of like superstar House members that we focus on who are known by more people probably than their own Congress person. And that, to me, just indicates something wrong with the system. And I think maybe if you had a little bit smaller group that these people had to represent, we might feel more connected to what's going on in Washington. I also think you need changes in the House, in the rules, because if you're just going to send like 400 more people, it might be unmanageable or and or the speaker just might take over, the committees just take over. And, you know, you are giving less of a. You're sending more people in, but each one has less power. There's no doubt about that. So you have to watch that too. I think some of the House rules would have to change. Less power to committees, more floor votes to bring legislation out. But, you know, I just think on so many fronts, our complaints are that the status quo isn't working. And, you know, we just appear helpless to do anything about it when I think there are a lot of solutions that one could try if there was ever the will to do it. Hey, some great topics from the listeners. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We are at Twitter, at myhist, M-Y-H-I-S-T, Patreon, patreon patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. Thanks for listening.